Monsters from Mars. The album is the Atlantis EP. The song is It's the Night of the Vampire. It appears by permission on this podcast, which is Monster Kid Radio. This is episode 22. My name is Derek M. Cook, your host and producer of the podcast that celebrates the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And this episode is part two of our reaction to the Rolling Stone list best monster movies of all time it appeared on their website in mid-july and we have some thoughts about it here on monster kid radio we're going to share with you later on in this episode before we get to any of that though i want to get our contact information out of the way you can find our website at monsterkidradio.net now on our website you can find links to things like our facebook group where conversations are happening between listeners of the show you can always join the group or like us on facebook you can also email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call us at 503-4795-MKR. We are continuing to see people like us on Facebook, so big thanks to everybody who's done so. If you haven't done so, I'm going to ask you to you know, hop over to Facebook and do that. If you are a user of Facebook, if you're a user of iTunes, we're going to ask you to leave us a review in the iTunes store. And of course, if you're a member of any message boards or anything like that, let them know about Monster Kid Radio. The more people who listen to the show, the more people might write in. And we do have a piece of feedback that we're going to review at the end of this episode. I'm excited to share that with you. It's our first piece of email feedback to go out on the show. Of course, also on our website are links to everything we talk about here on the show, including a link to the band Monsters from Mars. You can check them out at monstersfrommars.com. In addition to that piece of feedback and reacting to that Rolling Stone list, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a couple of movies that I've watched recently, some classic genre movies. I'll let you know what I thought about those films, and we'll get to all of that right after this. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. (laughs) 
So in the last episode of Monster Kid Radio, we reacted to the article, Best Monster Movies of All Time. It appeared on July 15th on the Rolling Stone website. That's rollingstone.com. The article is written by Alexis Murphy and Julian Ring. The subtitle of the article is Pacific Rim Makes Our List of Horror Classics. Last time around, we talked about the list itself, some things that I wouldn't consider best monster movies or horror classics. Question the order of some of the movies on this list, if it truly is a countdown to number one, and even question some of the fact-checking skills of whoever put this article online. Again, to reiterate, we have to keep in mind that Alexis Murphy and Julian Ring, at least in terms of anything that is online about them, are not one of us. They're not monster kids, at least not in terms of their career as writers. I haven't found a lot about them online, and honestly, I haven't looked too closely because I'm not going to go chase people down and say, hey, you're not nerd enough to be talking about these movies like, you know, us monster kids are. You know, I'm not going to do that. But it is important to keep in mind that Alexis Murphy and Julian Ring write for RollingStone.com, which is the website of the Rolling Stone magazine, which is about music and politics and some pop culture. It's also important to keep in mind that this article came out when Pacific Rim is still pretty new in the theaters. When movies like Swamp Thing are about to come out on Blu-ray, when movies like Gremlins are being talked about being remade, it's just important to keep this kind of thing in mind. Because really, this article, like anything that you put online, is designed to attract viewers, to get clicks. And a place like RollingStone.com rely on advertising revenue, and the more people click on a list like this, you know, better for the advertisers, whatever. You know, it's all a business, and, a, and I get that. I mean, even this podcast is designed to get people to listen to it, so I understand. As talked about over at the Facebook group, there's a conversation going on right now about how when you put the words best of all time, top 20, things like that in an article, it instantly grabs people's attention. So also, it's an easier kind of article to write, at least if you're not so steeped in the subject matter that you just can't pick. I've talked about this here on the show way back in episode one when I had Chris McMillan on the show and we talked about our favorite top three monster movies. It's hard to pick our favorites. I have one or two that are right up there at the top of my personal best list. But when it comes to moving them all around, it's, it's just tough to kind of go through and, and isolate a few. And that's why I'm not going to give you my top 20 list because I can't do it. Additionally, we have to look at the words like best and horror classics and define that. I mean, when you define the best monster movies of all time. Best according to who? Best according to Rolling Stone. Best in terms of what they did at the box office. Best in terms of what they did historically, impacting the genre, impacting cinema, that sort of thing. Best is just such a, an empty word. The list of horror classics? Well, we talked about this last time as well. A lot of these movies aren't considered horror films. Little Shop of Horrors has the word horror in the title. It's about a man-eating plant but it's a musical, and it's got some romantic comedy elements in it. It's not really a horror movie. Heck, we could even struggle over defining the word horror. Does it instill feelings of horror? Horror doesn't necessarily mean monster movie. I mean, you can have some fun, lighthearted monster movies that aren't necessarily horror films. So maybe that's how Little Shop of Horrors or Gremlins made it on their list, and that's okay. But again, it's just so subjective when you use words like best in a list like this. If I were to put together the official Monster Kid Radio sanctioned best monster movies of all time article and put it online, some of the movies that Murphy and Ring listed will, of course, make it on there. Godzilla, King Kong, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, of course. And those of you 
who know my podcasting history know that from 2008 to 2013, earlier this year, I produced a podcast called Mail Order Zombie. I'm shocked that a movie like Night of the Living Dead, the original 1968 George A. Romero classic, did not make it on a list of best monster movies of all time. Now, again, I don't want to get into arguments about what does best mean, but historically, pop culture-wise, what it did to zombie cinema, what it did to horror cinema, Night of the Living Dead needs to be on a best monster movie of all time list, as does the original Bela Lugosi Dracula. I have no idea why Murphy and Ring left Dracula off their list, unless, well... I don't know, it's Rolling Stone magazine. The demographic certainly isn't me. Is the demographic of Rolling Stone the Twilight crowd? And the Twilight crowd, they like their vampires sparkly and sexy. So, I don't know, maybe Dracula doesn't have a place in their world. Whatever the reason, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, while it's not the very first vampire film, it's certainly one of the most affecting and influential. I mean, it's Bela Lugosi doing what Lugosi does best. It's Todd Browning's direction. Stagey, yes, but still inspiring and influential. The set design, the characters around Dracula in that film, I mean, Dwight Fry is amazing. Edward Van Sloan is amazing in this film. So Dracula needs to be on my best list. Sure, I'll include things like Alien, Jaws for sure, The Blob, yeah, I could see that. John Carpenter's The Thing, yeah, that belongs there too. But what about a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde film? I mean, you could pick any of them if you had to, but... I'd go old school. I would go Frederick March. I mean, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, early example of mad scientist film, also highlighting the psychodrama between the different aspects of man and the transformation scenes from Jekyll to Hyde in some of these films without CG, just special makeup, just lighting effects. It's phenomenal. Needs to be on a list like this. Now, while Monster Kid Radio tends to focus on films from the 30s through the 60s with a little bit of toe-dipping into the 70s. I love films of all eras. I specifically like some of the monster movies from the 80s. So there are two 80s monster movies that I would put on my best monster movies of all time list. Those movies are Fright Night and The Monster Squad. You want to update vampires for an 80s audience while still paying respect to everything that had come before, paying respect to the tradition of the horror hosts, paying respect to the Hammer films, paying respect to even the Universal films a little bit. Fright Night from 1985, director Tom Holland. It's terrifying. It's scary. It's horrific. Yet Chris Sarandon has got the sexy going on in this movie, which could maybe lead us into the Twilight era a little bit, so whether that's a good thing or not. Be Fright Night's a great film, and you know, I even like the remake a little bit. The remake was released in 2011. It was directed by Craig Gillespie. It stars David Tennant as not a horror host, but a shock magician in the style of Chris Angel. I think it updated the story in a decent way. I'm normally not a remake kind of guy, but this remake, it hit on some notes for me that I enjoyed specifically the music and if I could just digress just a little bit I have been obsessing over Ramin Javadi's score from Fright Night I don't know what it is for, for the past three days I've been listening to that thing on repeat on my iPod it's fun music to write to I suppose but we're getting a little off track here or are we and we'll get back to that here in a second but first, let's talk about 1987's The Monster Squad from director Fred Decker. Another movie that's scary, modern film, still pays respect to everything that came before. This one probably pays more respect to Universal movies than Fright Night did. Fright Night 
While there's a touch of Universal in there as more of a Hammer Films retrospection, while the Monster Squad's still more in the Universal wheelhouse, right down to even name-dropping Alucard as opposed to Dracula, you know, Son of Dracula, that sort of thing. I'm a huge fan of the Monster Squad. I can tell you the first time I saw the Monster Squad was in my grandparents' living room. I was visiting my grandparents. Oh, man, I'm trying to remember. My parents weren't there but I wasn't in college yet. They were down in Arizona and, and I was on my own and I was allowed to rent some videotapes and bring them home and watch them by myself. And I ended up watching the monster squad. It was rated PG 13. So it was quote unquote safe since I wasn't allowed to watch R rated movies. And I was just transfixed by this thing, wishing that as soon as I got back home, I believe I was living in Cheyenne, Wyoming at the time that I had a monster squad club to go back to and that I could go fight monsters and that sort of thing. Because really, I mean, the monster squad was made for people like me and probably people like you listener as well. And don't ask me about my fan fiction treatment for a monster squad part two. Just don't. Okay. Maybe do, but I'm not going to talk about it here. I want to stay in the eighties just a little bit longer because there's another movie that came out in the eighties from director, John Carpenter that I adore. However, here's where we start to play a little bit of the semantics game again. This list is called the best monster movies of all time. Not all horror movies are monster movies, just like not all monster movies are horror movies. Not all monster movies are horror movies. Just because it's a horror movie, you you can't put it on a monster movie list, so to speak. I mean, I know a guy who loves the kaiju films, the Godzilla movies, consider those monster movies, but then he'll also tell me he's not a big horror movie fan, whereas I feel that a lot of those are horror. Anyway, monster doesn't necessarily equal horror. So when you look at a lot of the horror movies that came out in the 80s and 90s, the slasher films, it's tough to call those monster movies. However, I would say that a movie that features the devil or maybe even an antichrist-like devil-looking figure could be considered a monster movie if you stretch the definition a little bit and that's why i'm going to put john carpenter's prince of darkness on my list partly because i love the movie mostly because i love the film score i had a chance to see this at the hp lovecraft film festival in cthulhu con earlier this year it was a 35 millimeter print at the hollywood theater It was cranked up. I was sitting near the front with Chris McMillan and Ray, who you've heard on the show as well, Ray Jelinek, and just to wallow in the film score, the baseline just washing over you. And then the film itself, I would put that on my list, and I would be ready to defend calling the son of Satan or whatever that thing is a monster. Speaking of devil-like figures, however, could you put something like Legend on this list? I mean, Legend features various monsters, I suppose, but it's got Tim Curry as the devil. It's tough when you start talking fantasy films, though, to consider a fantasy film filled with monsters. I know we do it here on Monster Kid Radio. I mean, we talk about Ray Harryhausen films all the time, and that's why Harryhausen needs to be on my list somewhere. I'm shocked that Harryhausen, considering he just passed away not too long ago, did not make this list. If there was any, let's get as many people to click on this article as possible motivation at all behind writing a list like this, why was Harryhausen skipped? Harryhausen's passing didn't happen all that long ago. Still kind of fresh on monster kid memories. I I don't know. Probably should have some Harryhausen on the list. Another subgenre of monster movies that is woefully neglected here on a list like this, big bug monster movies. Tarantula, The Deadly Mantis, Earth vs. Giant Spider, Them. I would think I would probably put Them on a list like this. 
it's probably the most realistic of the big bug monster movies and has the most downbeat ending. So if you're going to insist that these are horror movies, I definitely would go with them and put something like that on the list. We're dipping back into the 1950s. Director Gordon Douglas was behind them. It's a great movie that I want to talk about in detail with somebody here on the show in the near future. A movie that I have already talked about here on Monster Kid Radio in the past was The Fly, which of course made Murphy's on Rings list. However, there are no other Vincent Price films on this list. Where's your last man on earth? Where's your last man on earth? I mean, last man on earth is a prototypical zombie movie, vampire movie. Depending on what kind of mood I'm in, (laughs) I consider the best film adaptation of I am legend. It's right up there with Omega man, depending on what kind of mood I'm in. But uh, I mean, last man on earth, come on, it's Vincent Price. You got to have Vincent Price on a list like this. Speaking of which, we are going to be doing a Vincent Price episode down the line. Stay tuned for that. It'll probably happen uh, within the next month. So pay attention to the Facebook page or the website for more details about when that's going to happen. I would take a movie like Pan's Labyrinth off the list. I appreciate that Murphy and Ring are trying to kind of go outside the box a little bit, if they were ever in the box to begin with, and include something like Pan's Labyrinth, which is a beautiful film. Music-wise, visually, production design, direction. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful movie. It's not a horror classic. However, I would put a movie like Nightbreed in its place. Now, this is Clive Barker's Star Wars of monster movies. At least that's what he wanted it to be. I think a lot of us kind of know the story behind what happened with Nightbreed. He turned in a cut of the film. The studio said, ah, and made him go back to reshoot some things, cut a lot of stuff out. We are just now about to see the Barker version of this movie. It's going to hit home media next year. I had a chance to see a cut of it at the Lovecraft Film Festival, uh, and it's it's a wonderful story to begin with, and to see more of Clive Barker's original vision of this movie is just fantastic. If you guys have an opportunity to see the Cabal cut of Nightbreed, guys and gals, you got to check it out, although I think they've yanked it from the festival circuit because it is going to be coming out, at least on DVD. I'm hoping for Blu-ray as well, and I can't remember off the top of my head if that's going to happen. But this is a monster movie, and flat out, no question. I mean, you've got characters saying that Midian which is one of the main locations. It's where the monsters live. The line of dialogue is actually Midian's where the monsters are. So this is a monster movie. It's a proper monster movie. It's got Danny Elfman doing the music, and I'm kind of getting stuck on the music. Let me try to get away from that. Tons of monsters in the background, in the foreground, your main characters. And if you want to really get serious about it, I suppose you can consider Deckard the monster, the real monster, of Nightbreed. One of the things, one of the themes that you find in some of Barker's films is that the humans are worse than the monsters. And in Nightbreed, that's definitely the case. But now we start getting into serial killer territory and we start talking about how, you know, some of these real world stuff are considered monsters. And I like keeping them fantasy. That said, I'm going to go ahead and throw a Nightmare on Elm Street on there. I know it's a slasher film. And my personal preference, I actually prefer Friday the 13th to the Nightmare on Elm Street series overall. However, Nightmare on Elm Street blends serial killer and some other icky real-world stuff with fantasy dream imagery. Is it one of the best? I'd think so. It helped form the supernatural slasher film. Robert England is perhaps, I'd venture to say, the last guy that we've had in horror cinema that we know by name on site overall. 
We don't have a Bela Lugosi these days. We don't have a Lon Chaney Jr. We don't have a Boris Karloff. But we do have a Robert England. And A Nightmare on Elm Street is a big part of that. You know what else is missing on this list? Anything from Hammer Films. I mean, really? I'm biased. I produce a Hammer Films podcast with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell. You all heard a promo for it earlier. I've played the promo here on the show more than once because I'm very proud of what we do over there. But there are no Hammer Films on this list. No Horror of Dracula. No Curse of Frankenstein. Where's Curse of the Werewolf? Where's Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell? Captain Kronos? Any of their mummy films, which I really enjoy. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. I mean, these are wonderful movies. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires actually just made its way into my top five list of favorite Hammer films of all time. So I'm kind of stuck on that one right now. But the Frankenstein movies, the Mummy movies, they're fantastic monster movies. And I have no idea why they got skipped. But then a few years ago, remember at the Oscars when they did a tribute to horror and brought out a couple of actors from the Twilight movies to talk about them? Hammer was not included in that montage sequence either. And again, if this article had any SEO motivations behind it, search engine optimizations behind it, Hammer Films is back. They missed it. They dropped the ball. There was some discussion on the Facebook group about the placement of King Kong and Godzilla on the Rolling Stone list. They listed King Kong number two, Godzilla number one. Honestly, I still feel that they kind of got the order wrong. If you're going to say it's the best list, I think you have to really look at what you mean by the word best. And in terms of what's the most important film here, I think King Kong is more important than Godzilla. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't let Kyle from the Kaiju cast know that I said this, okay? I still like Godzilla. But King Kong, maybe it's because I just saw it on the big screen a while back. I have an affinity toward that film. I can't help it. The music's fantastic. The performances are great, and it's Willis O'Brien going through the beginning stages of birthing Ray Harryhausen. I mean, if it wasn't for King Kong, there'd be no Mighty Joe Young. No Mighty Joe Young, no Ray Harryhausen. No Ray Harryhausen, none of his films that would influence... I've done this already. I believe King Kong belongs ahead of Godzilla, but only by one slot. Uh, Should they be number one and number two? I don't... No, I'd put Creature from the Black Lagoon there just because I love that movie so much. I feel like Creature from the Black Lagoon blends the classic monster universal mold and the classic science fiction universal mold in a way that you don't see in the other science fiction movies of the universal era. There's a reason why the Gill Man is talked about with the same reverent breath that you talk about Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and the Bride of Dracula and all that. And you don't talk about, say... Well, the guy from Monster on the Campus. I mean, there's a reason for it. It's a wonderful suit design. It's just a great movie. I absolutely adore that film. So my personal bias would creep out in an article like this, and it would be my number one. It's probably best that I don't try to create a best monster movie list of all time because as soon as I put it to paper, as soon as I commit pixels and digits to it and it appears online anywhere, my thoughts are going to change. I mean, that's what we do as Monster Kids. We have one or two favorites, and it might be fun to try to put a list together. But really, we love so many of these movies. And I've been corresponding with some listeners privately. And you know, some of the things that we say back and forth over and over again, so many movies, so little time. I mean, this just happened to me over at the 1951 Down Place podcast. I thought I had my set top five Hammer films. I watched a movie for the podcast and changed my world. I had to change my list. And heck... 
you know, check in with me maybe a couple of months from now. And the two movies that I'm going to talk about later in this episode, the movies that I watched uh, this past week, I may change my opinions on them and decide that they're best. Well, no spoilers. If there are any movies that I missed that you think should make a best monster movie list of all time, call it in and leave me a voicemail at 503-479-5MKR and I'll play it on the show. I'm on my way home from the office of Dorado Films, which is a film company here in Portland, Oregon that I do some work for. Earlier this year, I was hosting some film screenings at a local theater called the Clinton Street Theater. I have some of their movies. They specialize mostly in European cinema, Euro spy, spaghetti westerns, some horror movies, and specifically Argo Man, the Fantastic Superman. Uh, this is one of my favorite films, and we're going to talk about that in the near future here on Monster Kid Radio. It's a European spy superhero movie. Euro Spy by way of the Adam West Batman series is how I typically describe it to people who have no idea what I'm talking about. And then they typically still have no idea what I'm talking about. But trust me, I love Argo Man, the Fantastic Superman. I even have a Facebook group called the Portland Argo Man Appreciation Society. I I just, I'm a big fan of the film. And because it's a superhero movie, it's not quite monster kid-ish. That said, there are killer robots kind of sort of counts and you know i think we're gonna talk about argo man down the line anyway i'm coming home from dorado films and i wanted to share with you some thoughts about a couple of other movies that i've seen recently now these aren't movies from dorado films these are just a couple of movies that i had sitting at home in my collection actually picking these movies was inspired by talking to paul mccomas the author of fit for a frankenstein and who was our guest on last week's episodes of monster kid radio he mentioned to me that he's got a book on edgar ulmer in the works this is a director of films probably his best known film at least to me was the black cat but i thought you know i want to learn a little bit more about him and i ended up checking out 1960s beyond the time barrier i checked it out because it had robert clark in it and robert clark is The Hideous Sun Demon, which is a film that I really enjoy. I wanted to check this Beyond the Time Barrier film out as well. It's not great. Uh, honestly, I was a little disappointed by it, and I thought Robert Clark was not very good in it, although I felt he was the best actor of everybody in the movie. Now, in the movie, he plays uh, a jet pilot who is on an experimental run doing some tests goes up in the air and something happens and time fast forwards to the year 2012 he finds himself in a post-apocalyptic world he lands back down at the airbase but things are quite different for him now the landscape is barren buildings are destroyed and he ends up getting captured by some of the locals and gets himself wrapped up in a conflict i suppose involving well honestly kind of lost track i enjoy these movies on a couple of different levels. Sometimes I enjoy them because they're actually good films with great acting and great direction, great writing, great special effects, or great cinematography. And sometimes I enjoy these movies because they give us some insight as to what was on the pop culture radar, on the sociological radar of the people of the time. This is a movie from 1960 dealing with a post-apocalyptic scenario. You know, it's okay. I still didn't like the movie very much. I found myself wishing that Robert Clark would get out of the way so that I could just look at the backgrounds because the cinematography and the production design is straight up Edgar Ulmer in this film, especially whenever he's like in a dungeon or being held captive, the way the light crisscrosses against the walls behind him, top notch, 
really enjoyed this movie on that level. And again, it was a look at 1960s movie making dealing with post-apocalyptic fears. Interesting film. Probably not one I'm going to go back and watch again anytime soon, but I'm glad I have it in my collection. The other movie that I watch, again, inspired by Paul McComas, one of the Lon Chaney Jr. movie. And I've got a number of these 50 movie packs from Mill Creek Entertainment. I love what Mill Creek does. Sure, the prints aren't the greatest, but it's not like you're going to find these movies anywhere else in great condition anyway. They're affordable. The only thing that I would caution anybody getting into the Mill Creek Entertainment collecting game is double check the release years on the packs. Sometimes a pack like Legends of Horror or something like that will have one movie pulled in a later release and then replaced with another one. I'd actually recommend going to their website at millcreekent.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to check out what collections have what movies. I haven't been there in a while, to be honest, but at one point you could actually type in a movie and it would tell you what collection that movie is in. Not everything that Mill Creek Entertainment does is public domain. Keep that in mind. They have a lot of movies on license from Crown International, for example. But typically these 50 packs are mostly public domain films. And I checked out the movie Man Fish, starring Lon Chaney Jr. and John Bromfield. John Bromfield is in Revenge of the Creature, the sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon. He's the co-star of the film with John Agar, which is fantastic. I actually liked him in that movie. So I thought, you know, maybe this is going to be a good film. It's called Man Fish. And my thoughts actually echoed some of the thoughts of a reviewer on the Internet Movie Database about the movie. With a title like Manfish, and with Lachini Jr. in the movie, you kind of think the Manfish is some sort of monster. Maybe there's a mutated fish man thing going on. Or Lachini Jr. is becoming, I don't know, it doesn't matter. The Manfish is a boat. The movie's from 1956. It's directed by W. Lee Wilder, who has a ton of movies on these Mill Creek collections. The movie also stars Victor Jory as a professor, and he does a really good job. John Bromfield, not so much. I was a little bored by what he does. He seems very one-note. But then, no offense to Lon Chaney Jr., Lon Chaney Jr. also plays his character, Swede, very one-note. You know, Paul mentioned this when we were talking about some of Lon Chaney's later roles. He channels a lot of Lenny. He got kind of puffy pretty quick. It's like overnight he changed age groups. And this movie, he's kind of thick, sweaty, plays a character who's not necessarily all there. He's smart enough to be first mate on a ship called the Manfish, and he loves his boat. But there's a reason why he lives on the boat, doesn't have any other family, really has a hard time forming relationships with people, gets bullied a little bit, sometimes by John Bromfield's character, Captain Brannigan, and sometimes by Victor Jory's professor character. Although his bullying is a little less physical and a little more kind of talking down to him. The movie is not a horror movie at all. It ends up on this 50-pack because Lon Chaney Jr. is in it, and I think you just assume Chaney equals horror, but you know, Chaney can do so much more. And what this movie is, is supposedly based on an Edgar Allan Poe story or two. The Man Fish is a boat that Captain Brannigan owes a lot of money on, and he stumbles across a treasure map, or at least part of a treasure map. The professor has the other part of it. And together they become unlikely, unwilling partners to try to find the treasure. Of course, one wants to kill the other, or maybe they both want to kill each other so they can keep all the money for themselves. Swede doesn't really have any use for the money. He's more invested in the boat. In fact, at one point, I kind of got the impression that the boat used to belong to Swede. At least, maybe that's what I was kind of hoping for. 
there's a moment where Captain Brannigan and Swede are talking about how important the boat is to Swede, but to keep in mind that Captain Brannigan owns the boat, and Swede mentions that he knows he won him in a card game fair and square, and it made me think that maybe he and Swede were playing cards, and Brannigan swindled him a little bit, although this is never really touched on again, and I may be really reading in between some very broad lines here. The movie's stilted in its writing and its direction. Cheney's always fun to watch. Bromfield, every once in a while, gives us a glimmer of hope. Jory's great, but he's also just very one-note. Everything about this movie is very one-note. And towards the end, you can really tell they were trying to channel Poe. There's something that happens that's very Telltale Heart. Although in Telltale Heart, what happens is pretty much in the character's head, whereas in this one, well, what's happening is real. It's, it's not just in somebody's head. You get to see Lon Chaney Jr. swim a lot. You see some local fishermen fishing for turtles. You get some local music. It takes place on, I believe, the Caribbean somewhere. And you get to see Lon Chaney Jr. playing captain, or at least first mate, on the manfish. And he looks really at home behind the wheel, smoking a pipe. He looks really happy about it. In fact, I can imagine that Lon Chaney Jr. is one of those guys who would have loved to have just taken the boat out on the water in his older years and just do whatever it is old fishermen do. Both of these movies are pretty easily available if you know where to look. Like I said, Manfish is definitely public domain. Beyond the time barrier, I'm not 100% sure on his public domain status, although I believe Sinister Cinema has a copy of it out. You might be able to get it from them if you can't find it elsewhere. I'm sure if they're public domain, you can find them on places like archive.org as well. And one thing's for sure, neither one of these movies are Argo Man. We received an email from a listener. It's from Larry C. in Missouri. He writes, This show is right up my alley. I love the B-movie, classic horror, and sci-fi movies. And dig the intro retro surfer music. Have you checked out the classic monster art of Daniel Horn? And what was the beef between Lon Chaney Jr. and Evil and Acres? Never heard of that. Sad. Larry in Missouri. Okay, so a couple things uh, right off the bat. Thank you for listening, and I'm glad you enjoy it. I enjoy producing the show every week. It's a lot of fun for me to revisit these movies. I keep talking about how I've produced other shows or I'm doing other podcasts, but Monster Kid Radio is where my heart really is. So thank you for listening. As far as the beef between Evil and Anchors and Lon Chaney Jr., I don't know what that beef is, and I don't think Paul McComas knew either. Lon Chaney Jr., from all reports, was a charismatic guy, took care of his fellow actors and actresses, got along with everybody, I have read reports that he was sometimes overly playful with people, kind of playing pranks every once in a while, and probably did that a bit too much with Miss Anchors. Maybe one too many scares put her over the edge and they just never got along. Thing is, is that Miss Anchors was never publicly rude about the whole thing, so it's not like there was ever anything in a newspaper somewhere. They were both under contract to Universal, or at least working for Universal, when they worked together. So I'm sure the studio had something to do with making sure that any disagreements between the two never really got out into the public. I don't know. It's unfortunate because they really do work well together. They have great charisma and great chemistry when they're working with each other. And I actually would team those two up in a future film if I had that opportunity to do so. You know, if I had a time machine or something. And you mentioned Daniel Horn. Okay, Monster Kids, if you don't know who Daniel Horn is, you need to stop what you're doing. Unless you're driving right now, then get home. And then go online and look up DanielHornStudios.com. And that's Horn with an E at the end. So DanielHornStudios.com. And you can see some amazing artwork. Daniel Horn is a friend of mine. 
He's produced some art for me uh, in the past, and I have a number of his prints here. I met him for the first time at MaskFest at a Horror Hound weekend convention a couple of years ago. And at the time, I was producing my zombie movie podcast, and he recognized my voice because apparently he listened to my show. He had heard me on the B-Movie cast as well. And we struck up a friendship, and every time I go to a convention, which hasn't been for a couple of years now, but every time I go to a convention and he's there, I make it a point to check in with him and hang out with him because he's a wonderful man. His graciousness and his kindness exceed his painting, sculpting, and illustrating capabilities. And I got to tell you, as an artist, Daniel Horn will make you weep with joy because the work that he does is so good. I actually first encountered his work consciously when I saw his Boris Karloff image on a cover of Monsters from the Vault magazine. That's actually the first print of his that I bought because it was the first one that actually connected to me as a monster kid. That said, he'd actually done a lot of role-playing game covers and, and novel covers back in the day, and I actually have a couple of those books here as well. So for years, I've been carrying around uh, Daniel Horn's artwork. I've been carrying Daniel Horn with me for years, and it's safe to say that I'm a huge fan now. His cover art on Monsters from the Vault magazine, one of the main reasons that I pick up that magazine month after month after month, because I just have to see what he's doing next. Sustain the Lon Chaney Jr. theme, the most recent issue of Monsters from the Vault features Chaney as the Wolfman on the cover. It is so lifelike and it is amazing that it's painted it's not photo it's not you know it's just it's paint and it's beautiful he just announced not too long ago on his facebook page that he's been commissioned to do some artwork for a del toro film now he hasn't said what he's painting yet but i know that he has done personal artwork he's been commissioned by del toro in the past to do some painting for him he's done some paintings that have ended up in the house of rick baker the special makeup effects guy i mean his work is that good and i would easily hang what he does up in a fine arts gallery somewhere because it's gorgeous he also makes the dolls that are incredibly lifelike he does these wonderful caricature paintings and sculptures as well so good. So yeah, danielhornstudios.com. Go check that out. There will be a link in the show notes to that. And I'm glad you like the music. I've been having a lot of fun tracking down music for the show. All of the music that appears on Monster Kid Radio appears by permission of the band. So if you like what you hear, let the bands know. I mean, a lot of them are on Facebook or have websites or whatever. Let them know that you heard them on Monster Kid Radio and that you like what they do. If you're looking to buy some new music for your collection, download one of their MP3s or buy a CD. Just let them know the Monster Kid Radio sent you because that helps us out a little bit too. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm excited to bring a new guest to the show. He's never been on any of my podcasts before as a guest like this. His name's Tom Beagler. He's a dear friend of mine. He's an artist, a memorabilia collector, and a huge fan of monster movies. We are going to be talking about the film Matengo from 1963. This is a Japanese horror movie from Ashiro Honda. It's from Toho Studios. I had never seen the movie before. This is a movie that Tom had seen more than once, and he really enjoyed it, did a little bit of research for it. So I'm excited to share those episodes with you next week. So make sure you come back to monsterkidradio.net for that. Of course, we're also available on Stitcher Radio or at our bare bones website, monsterkidradio.libsyn. That's L I B S Y N. Com. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that does not extend to the song It's the Night of the Vampire from the EP release 
Atlantis by the band Monsters from Mars that appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. By permission. See you next week. (laughs) 